Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out GoLawEnforcement.com. Timothy Fay is a detective, digital forensic examiner, and hostage negotiator for the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office in Palm Beach County, Florida. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, Detective Faye discusses an incident where he was the primary negotiator with a former Navy SEAL who was in crisis. He also talks about an incident for which he was awarded the Life-Saving Medal. And Detective Faye discusses putting himself through the Law Enforcement Training Academy before he was hired by an agency using a process known as self-sponsorship. My name is Timothy Fay. I am a detective, a digital forensic examiner, and hostage negotiator for the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office in Palm Beach County, Florida. I think I was extremely interested uh, in law enforcement from when I was very young. My hero growing up was an uncle of mine. He was a very decorated paratrooper in Vietnam, and he's a 40-year veteran squad operator and team commander, and he actually just retired as a police lieutenant. And I think I always wanted to model myself after him. And so at 20 years old, I enlisted in the Army after a few years of college as an Abrams tanker. And uh, after serving three years in the Army with a combat tour in uh, central and western Baghdad, I returned home, and I knew that I was not remotely prepared to sit in an office day in and day out. So I took the influence from my uncle and put myself uh, through the police academy here. For me, the hiring process was pretty straightforward. It was basically the academy at the state college is where all the training and certification is held. And so you have to pass a certain amount of prerequisites before you're even allowed into the academy itself. You don't actually have to be sponsored by an agency or have a, uh, have a job pending. You can pay your own way, but they do model the admission process after what you would expect to see uh, in any police agency, i.e., a polygraph, uh, a background investigation, psychological test, as well as uh, drug screening, uh, things like that. So it was helpful because it took some of the mystery out of the whole process. Uh, And in the end, I was offered a job here uh, just as I was exiting the academy. The process of self-sponsoring your way through a police academy, it's certainly state-specific. There are many states that require you to be sponsored by a specific agency, as well as, you know, there are also many states that only have a state-run academy. So things here in Florida are a bit different in that the state colleges or community colleges are the ones that put on the police academies. 
Now, the instructors for those academies uh, are typically adjunct, and the vast majority of them are either current or retired uh, law enforcement officers from the, the area. And so the process here, what you just have to do is you apply and uh, you don't actually have to be guaranteed a job. You don't have to have one pending um, because the agencies are not affiliated specifically uh, with the academy. You're obtaining a state certification saying that you meet the qualifications to be hired. And so once you do that, you then actually, my opinion here is that uh, you become more attractive uh, to these agencies because you now have taken the initiative to put yourself through the academy and you also, you didn't cost them any money by doing so. So they save money there. And then they also have an opportunity by having these uh, employees who are adjunct instructors, they tend to, you know, let the agency know who they think would be a good hire. And so that's a good way for them to kind of recruit without spending a whole lot of money doing it. The tuition, when I went through the academy in 2008, was about $3,600, and it was a full-time, six-month process. You're at the academy at 6 a.m., you know, Monday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday, and uh, that is your entire life for those six months. And at the end of that, if you have passed all your written exams, your, your defensive tactics and driving and firearms you then meet the state qualification uh, for certification. The reason I attempted to uh, get picked up by the sheriff's office here was because being the third largest county here in Florida, uh, they have quite a large agency. We have about 3,500 employees and over 1,000 sworn law enforcement officers. And so what that did for me personally was because I wasn't sure, you know, which direction I wanted my law enforcement career to go in, it provided me with the most options. And so I actually worked on a volunteer basis when I first started because I was an unfortunate byproduct of the housing crisis. And so they were willing to offer several of us unpaid positions in the hopes of having the budget for a paid position down the road. And which, of course, they did. Because we have several units in our agency that are just part-time, negotiator being one of those, in my second year of being a forensic examiner, I saw that position open. So I interviewed for the negotiator position, and I was lucky enough to be chosen for that. My role as a hostage negotiator is several things. So our team specifically is broken up into two squads, and this is common among uh, hostage negotiator teams because, you know, with all the on-call things that come up, you know, uh, the teams need a break. And so we, we alternate month to month. Our team has seven negotiators each and uh, one supervisor per team. Uh, my role is that of a primary negotiator. Now, a primary negotiator is the actual person that's going to be on the phone, you know, speaking with the suspect or the person in crisis and trying to 
bring about a, uh, a peaceful resolution. And then second to that, as a primary, I am supported by basically the rest of my team. The very first person that I deal with as a, while I'm an, in a negotiation is my coach. And the coach's job is to listen in on the negotiation. And they're basically an extra set of ears. And uh, they typically have a little notepad. And, and anytime they think uh, I may have missed something or uh, they might think it'd be worthwhile to hit on a certain subject, uh, they'll pass me these notes and you kind of go through them as you're speaking with them and you pick and choose. And it's a very, very time proven process. And so when I am not a primary negotiator, my job is also to be the basic technology hand of the, of the team itself. We are trying to upgrade our technology that we employ, the most recent of which being these throw phone systems that allow us to provide the hostage taker or person in crisis with a cell phone. But this cell phone has the capability for us to monitor, you know, the scene itself from inside that we wouldn't otherwise be able to have. The very first thing that we do when we arrive on scene, our negotiators are typically just coming from they were off duty or they were they were on a uh, their regular duty. And so as everyone arrives, uh, the first job uh, regardless of who it is arriving on scene first is intelligence. Uh, the more information you have, the better your negotiation is going to be. We have two very important pieces of information that we always try to gather first. Uh, those things being hooks and triggers. Now hooks are any type of information, any tidbit about things that may grab the, the hostage taker or the person in crisis, grab their attention uh, in a positive way. So things that we could touch on that we know might help us build a rapport. And so the opposite of that is uh, a trigger. A trigger is red words that, for whatever reason, would probably set this person off in a very negative way. And so the importance of knowing what those things are and trying to stay as far away from them as possible, that is absolutely the first job of the first person on scene. And so the intelligence gathering is always the most important. And as the second or third or fourth team member begins to arrive, that's when we start to set up our command bus that we have. Uh, we're very lucky our sheriff spends a lot of money on equipment for us to have. And so we, uh, we have a top-of-the-line command bus that allows us to gather all our intelligence and share it with each other and conduct our negotiation in a very quiet place that is set back from the chaos that might be happening on scene. And then from there, it's just a matter of continuing to update our intelligence as it comes in and then possibly relaying that to the tactical side of, of our team, just in case, you know, they, that's something that might be helpful if they need to act to end the situation that we're in. In terms of 
the most difficult situations that we find ourselves in as negotiators. The calls that we receive uh, where there's been some type of firearm involved is always very high stress. Anytime there's a victim that cannot escape from either someone who's in crisis or a suspect of some kind that is armed, those situations are always, always going to be our, our most concerning type of situation that we find ourselves in. One of the reasons that I got into negotiating was because as a veteran, you know, I see very often when I'm at the VA hospital that there are always veterans in some type of crisis. Unfortunately, you know, veterans in this country are, they tend to be lost in the system. And unfortunately, when we're in a situation where we've had nonstop wars for the last 20 years, we end up with these soldiers, these airmen, these sailors who have had multiple combat tours and they have expended all of their energy and given everything that they have. And so this was one of those situations where this gentleman was a special operator. So he was extremely familiar with tactics. He was extremely familiar with combat. According to the information that we had, he was a very well-decorated Navy SEAL. And he had been actually an instructor at the Navy's BUDS training. And so we had to be very careful with this. The other issue that was immediately that we faced as soon as we were called to the scene was that he was just firing a, a rifle erratically through his front door and through one of his windows. Now, thankfully, he lives in an apartment complex that was set in such a way that the risk to the neighbors and the people around him was very low, and we were able to evacuate any of the surrounding buildings just to ensure that we limited that risk of injury. So, you know, as the only uh, recent combat veteran on my team, I decided to sit in as the primary negotiator and hopefully find some type of common ground with him. And this gentleman, unfortunately, had just went through the anniversary of the loss of one of his team members to suicide, which is unfortunately something that we see in the military. And so my first goal was to find out, you know, which things were uh, his hooks, which things could I discuss with him that, that might get him to, to allow me to build a rapport with him and, and gain some trust, and, but also find out which things were a red button hot topic items that I was going to try and steer clear of. And his biggest uh, agitator, unfortunately, was just uh, our presence. Uh, it wasn't until uh, his cell phone was beginning to die that I was able to offer him one of our own cell phones. And as soon as we were able to do that, he started to come around. He had no interest in me taking any opportunity to try and relate to him from a combat veteran standpoint. It wasn't until I was able to uh, relate to him from just a regular veteran standpoint of I've been down and I've needed help. And I was lucky enough to find assistance at the VA that, that I knew was helpful. And so I was able to convince him that the people that I deal with at the, the VA hospital here in West Palm Beach 
they were trustworthy and they were going to be there to help him. And after about two and a half hours of negotiating with him, he was finally convinced to just surrender himself. And we were able to end this dangerous, dangerous situation without any harm to anybody uh, in the surrounding area and minimum harm to this gentleman. I was awarded the Life Saving Medal in 2013 as a night shift deputy. We were very familiar with uh, gun violence because unfortunately this is a low-income area, there's a uh, high unemployment area, and there's an extended amount of uh, gun violence. So when this call came uh, over the radio, the only information we had was that there was a gunshot victim and that they were losing a lot of blood. So myself and uh, my partner, Clint Sherb, uh, we were the first ones on the scene. And he is a former Marine Corps medic. And myself, having successfully completed our combat lifesaver training that we uh, were given before we deployed overseas, we were quite familiar with those types of injuries. And so when we arrived on the scene, I was not prepared for what I was going to see. I had never seen someone with that amount of blood loss that was coherent and able to communicate with us. Uh, but the first thing that we did was Clint brought his combat lifesaver bag out with him and he immediately went to work uh, removing this gentleman's pants. Uh, this gentleman was actually a security guard for an apartment complex. And he, for whatever reason, was using the restroom and playing or uh, just handling his firearm while he was in the restroom. And he uh, accidentally discharged it and it severed his femoral artery. So when we actually arrived and we saw that he was conscious, the very first thing that Deputy Sherb began to do was to pack this wound with gauze. And uh, my job was to apply uh, one of our combat tourniquets that we are issued. Uh, I actually, even before we were issued combat tourniquets, I brought that technology with me from the military. So I was extremely familiar with it. And uh, that absolutely helped me in this situation because it was just unbelievably stressful. This gentleman was definitely on the verge of death. And uh, thankfully, we were able to stop the bleeding and get him onto a helicopter to uh, one of our trauma centers here in Palm Beach County. And we found out later that morning that they were able to keep this man alive. And uh, he was actually present when we were uh, awarded the life-saving medal. It's one of the most proud moments that I have working here at the sheriff's office. It's just one of those things that you are not expecting. But if I've learned anything in law enforcement is that every day is going to be different. And you just, you have to be prepared for these things as they come and just work these problems, uh, regardless of what they are, uh, and, and, and just try to be as calm as possible. My advice uh, for anyone that is interested in law enforcement, first and foremost, is education. Uh, I think it's extremely important for potential candidates that are looking to become law enforcement officers to have an education, uh, whether it's a technical college degree or just a 
just a regular uh, bachelor's degree from a, an accredited college. Knowledge is power in this job, and you learn quickly that it shapes you in a way that allows you to better interact with the public. And then I would absolutely say that you have to go deep and you have to know that you have a passion for helping people because this absolutely cannot be a job for people who just want to puff out their chests and hold power over people. We've seen it happen and, and it's unfortunate. And I would just love to see that, you know, people that are considering this job, they just need to have a passion for helping people. You don't have to be interested in, in hostage negotiation or crisis intervention but your job as a law enforcement officer, first and foremost, is you're a counselor. You are the first person to help these people on what is most likely the worst day of their lives. And unfortunately, uh, we get complacent because we see it every day and we forget that, you know, that when we're interacting uh, with someone who's a victim of a crime, that it probably is the worst day of their lives. And so, I absolutely would say that you have to bring a passion to this job for helping people, regardless of what your, uh, what your interests are uh, within law enforcement, whether it be investigations or aviation or uh, bomb disposal. Uh, you absolutely just have to have a passion for people. Passing the police exam is a vital step towards becoming a law enforcement officer. GoLawEnforcement.com can help you pass the police exam and get a score that will get you hired. Check out golawenforcement.com. Thanks for listening.